Hi, sexy listeners. I'm Dr. Tammy. Welcome to The Trouble With Sex. I'm so excited today to have a really cool guest, someone that I've been trying to get on the podcast for a while and life has gotten in the way. She is a dynamo, this woman. Shadeen Francis, she's a licensed psychotherapist, a graduate professor, and a media personality who specializes in sex therapy and social justice. I know her because she's talked in my courses and on my panels about alternative and fringe sexual issues, which just blows the audience away, like unbelievable. When you talk about race and sex mixed together, people freak out. Like you can hear a pin drop in the room sometimes. We're talking like really kinky, (laughs) sexy race issues. And I'm going to ask her about that. You know I am. And she's talking about the nuances of pleasure and shame and the stories that are really deep inside of us around our unconscious bias around race and sexual violence and trauma and decolonization, all the things that could sound really scary and stressful. And she makes them fascinating, sexy, fun to talk about. And you just feel smarter after listening to her. We are supported by Dame Products. I want to empower you to find your pleasure with the help of our friends at Dame. Dame is a new kind of pleasure toy company with the mission of making the world a happier place one vagina at a time. Who doesn't love that? All their products are designed by women to bring you quality, versatile, and discreet toys for sex that are going to electrify both your solo and couple play. That's Dame's pleasure promise. I love that. Visit dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex and you're going to get 15% off all your orders by typing in promo code Dr. Tammy, D-R-T-A-M-M-Y, at checkout. Again, that's dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex, promo code Dr. Tammy. I'm so excited to have you, Shadeen. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, I'm so glad too. You have been such a force in this field. Tell us more about your vision and your journey around sex and sex therapy. Yeah, I started in the field imagining that I was a mutant. Uh, and so my original career goal was to join the X-Men. Uh, and, so, and my ideal position in that would have been shapeshifter. I really loved Mystique for any of you comic book nerds. And I really wanted the opportunity to have lots of different kinds of conversations and to be able to be in a lot of different places and connect with lots of different kinds of people. And I think for any of us who might have felt like othered or excluded in some way, I was bullied and teased uh, pretty badly as a kid. And so just acknowledging that I had this really strong pull to want to connect with people and really could see people who were left on the fringes. And that absolutely colors the way that I show up in the work now, uh, that I don't necessarily consider any particular conversation off limits. And in every conversation that I'm having with folks, really wanting to teach people not just how to be well themselves, but also how to notice who's being left out. And so I think that's what moved me from just talking about sex to also incorporating a lot around these conversations around justice and equity, because we don't often think about pleasure in general. And then if I'm having a good time, do we remember to think about like, okay, who who else is having a good time? 
And then from there, do we also think about who isn't having a good time and why not? Mm. So tell me about that. Like, do, do you think that a lot of the trouble with sex today is that pleasure is a privilege? Like, is it just for the privilege? Is it just for, you know, women who aren't working all day and taking care of their kids and women who aren't tired and, you know, women who have the money for it? Like, tell me about, tell me about the privilege part because I, I really think that at times in our culture when, you know, we have had time to think about it, we think more about pleasure. And when we don't have time to think about it, we talk about things like low desire and, you know, sexual dysfunction in women. And I think a lot of that has to do with being exhausted. Yeah. You know, the the way that I would narrate it is that the trouble with sex from my vantage point has a lot to do with our disconnection from feeling. For some folks, it's an aversion to feeling right? That a lot of what we feel isn't very pleasant. uh, And so we don't want to feel it. But for many of us, we have learned to not feel, to not feel our emotions, to not feel our connections, to not feel our bodies. And a lot of that is by design. Think about the way our work lives are structured and how much that inspires us to be disconnected from our authentic feelings. You wake up in the morning and you are tired or you're not feeling well. But you have to start work at nine o'clock. So you get up anyways, even though you know that what your body is wanting is for you to be slower or to be gentle. You're in a relationship with someone and they touch you or kiss you or say something in a way that doesn't really feel right, but that's the way they speak. And you want this relationship to work. And so you ignore those feelings or you let it pass. There are so many little ways that we are taught, that we are trained, that we are practiced in ignoring our feelings. And I can't imagine how anyone is supposed to experience pleasure without really being present to what you feel because our feelings help us know what we need. And when we get what we need, we also have more room than to pursue what we want. And I think that's so true for women. I mean, if we really listen to our feelings, we might, you know, eat a lot of chocolate and... (laughs) you know, really eat what we wanted instead of eating salad all day or what we think we should want. And, you know, we might have sex with people that we're not supposed to or the kind of sex that maybe isn't politically correct. And so we kind of have been taught to repress a lot of our true desires. I mean, we, you know, we've been taught that we are the cause of the fall of our civilization by eating that apple. You know, we followed our feelings and our pleasure and our desire and look where that got us. So so there's a, a link there between us repressing our feelings, like you're saying, and not following our pleasure. And so it's really true that it's harder for women. Yeah. And I, you know, even if we were to take that biblical reference, right, we, we hyper-focus on, you know, who made a choice. And of course, we're always accountable for the choices that we made, but we actually don't think about the context under which those choices were, were, were actually acted on, right? So who convinced her? <laughs> And so that is the exact same as the system that we live in. So you look at someone and you look at the way that they live and you're eating this. And so your body looks this way or you're raising your kids in this way. And no one's actually looking at all of the messages that happen behind the scenes. Who's whispering in your ear telling you that you're bad, you're wrong, you're dirty, you're disgusting, you're lazy, or this is what productivity is. This is what it means to be a good wife or partner who says that you should have everything you want? 
all of those messages absolutely inform the way we move through the world. And so while, again, we're going to be accountable for eating whatever apple we choose, where is the accountability for the system that that exists within and the people who are behind the scenes really instructing us to disconnect from our core drives? So how do we challenge that system and break away? How do we challenge that story within us and start to make some changes? Yeah, you know, we're, we're recording this while shelter-in-place mandates are active, and it's challenging a lot of people to really reflect on what it is that they think and what it is that they want and what parts of their lives were not working for them. And as folks, you know, hear and notice those things, I really want to offer, rather than just sitting in judgment, to also think about who benefits, who benefits from any of the things that you feel like you should be doing or should have done. And if you can't name yourself in that moment, maybe you can give yourself a little bit of a break, (laughs) right? Because a lot of the pressures that we have are so externally focused. I shouldn't have had that piece of cake. Well, who taught you that? And what systems benefit? So not just the people, what systems benefit off of you feeling bad about yourself, Mm. right? Which, what companies, that's a fun exercise for anyone who wants to see how deep this can go, how many serpents are lurking around in your garden, right? How many companies could profit off of you feeling bad about that thing? And then you realize how much our choices are not really ours, And how little agency we are given or allowed at baseline. And it doesn't mean that choices are not available, but we also are not taught to choose. We're not taught that we have a choice. And when I'm having conversations that are more centered or steeped in social justice, I make a point to name that that is one of the key signs of oppression, right? An oppressive system make sure that the people within it do not even know they have a choice. And that shows up in our sex lives. That is so interesting because I've been watching Westworld and that's all about that, right? It's all about that. It's about, you know, that do you realize that none of the choices for your life are really yours? (laughs) That, you know, other people have been the system, the government, whoever has been making your choices, that you think you've been making choices for yourself your whole life, but it's not really, not really your own will. Yeah, because I do so much, you know, trauma work as a therapist. I can't really do trauma for entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't feel like fun for me. I'm like, I, I need to invoice someone for this. Uh, but just acknowledging that, you know, I, I really love dystopian fiction um, because I think it really calls us back into an awareness of where this all could go. I don't think that it's so, so far-fetched for us to imagine living within a system that tries to predetermine how we live. Because already we can see the trajectory for so many of us that we really get imprinted early and are creatures of habit. So we just recreate and reiterate on the stuff that we already know. And we don't always get to choose where we learn things from. So if you think about things that you do in your relationship, I'll give you know a little example. When my husband and I first moved in together, at one point he sort of stopped me and he said, like, why, why, do, you, why do you do that? Like, what are you talking about? 
I had picked up this habit of every time he would get up off the couch, I would refluff the pillows, even if he was like getting up to go to the bathroom or like grab a glass of water to the point where like, I'm sure it looked a little bit compulsive. And I didn't even notice that I was doing it. He would like get up and even if he was sitting next to me, I would reach over, readjust the pillows. So they always looked just so, you know, the crease through the middle. And he said, why, why do you do that? And I said, I have no idea. Well, two weeks later, we go to my mom's house and guess who does the same thing? My mom. And for her, she knew why she was doing it, right? That, that there's a way she likes the house to look. And I hadn't even noticed I'd picked that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So think about how much imprinting we have, both explicit, so they tell you this is what you're supposed to want or this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to look. Right, this is what girls do. This is what women right. do. This is what wives do. This is what an orgasm sounds like. This is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is how much money your partner is supposed to make. This is the two and a half kids that you're supposed to have and how well they're supposed to do in school and which schools they're supposed to go to. This is the kind of lunch you're supposed to enjoy eating. And so you pick all the croutons out. On the other side, all the things that we then mirror or mimic because nobody had the conversation. My mom didn't sit down and say, this is how you keep a nice couch. (laughs) And yet somehow I came to believe that that's what couches are supposed to look like. And then you have all of the cultural biases that are in your past too, as well, because you come from a very multicultural background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I am Uh, an immigrant to the States. My parents are Caribbean immigrants to Canada. I'm Canadian. So just acknowledging that as we move through all of these systems, you start to notice how even where you were raised makes a huge difference to what you believe. Mm -hmm. So there are cultures around, you know, inclusion versus exclusion. I think about the Caribbean, for example, um, and I will never differentiate well from my family. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's just not the it's not the Caribbean way, right? That you're really taught that there's always deference, that your parents, even if you are, you know, close, right? You're not friends. And that's normal and that's natural. And so thinking about all of the things that we learn in community with one another. And we learn how to relate to one another. We learn about how to build relationships with one another. Right. What did your family teach you about respect? That's going to show up in your relationships. We have family cultures that influence how we relate to one another. Is your family the kind of family that hugs, right? That somehow that that ends up being a rule. What are the things that you can say? Is it fine to argue? Who gets to be angry? All of those things inform how we relate to one another. And if we were to bring this back into sex, because we aren't thinking about these things, we also aren't checking in on how we feel about many of these things, whether they are freedoms or limits. Tell me more about how you got into some of the like alternative and fringe sexual issues, because that's such a fun conversation with you. Yeah, it was totally inevitable because I am a Gemini middle child millennial. I had to go to the conversations that people were not having, the conversations that make people uncomfortable. Of course, those are like the best things to talk about. The things that make people blush, the things that people are like, oh no, I do not want to talk about that. Uh, And so we open up a conversation talking about like fetishes or rope or anal, right? Whatever are the places that people feel like they cannot explore. And it doesn't mean that people actually have to do any of these things, but can we make space to talk about what is not being talked about? Because there's a reason you're not supposed to be talking about it. 
And it doesn't mean it's a good reason, but someone taught you that that's a bad and a wrong thing. And where it all ultimately goes for me is to disrupt our perception of normal, right? Normal is just frequency data, right? My dad's an engineer. So that's a way that I've learned to think, right? That normal is just what happens most often, but it depends on who you ask. Because for one person, normal might be missionary, seven and a half minutes every other Tuesday. Whereas for another person, normal is tie me up in some rope and rig me from the ceiling, flip me around a couple times, spank me, do not penetrate me, cuddle me after, and we're going to do this three times a week. Right, exactly. And so if we are able to move beyond what we were taught is normal, we actually have so much more permission to be real about what it is that we want. And if I can give myself permission to want what I want, then I have open access to pleasure. And who wouldn't want to live in a world where you have permission to enjoy the things that you like? What would you suggest to people to help them ask for what they really want, you know, to get in touch with their nuance of pleasure and to approach their partner for what they really like? And then um, what's a way to approach that topic if they're shy? I would love people to even start with just naming it for themselves, Having the conversation with another person might feel like a really big step. And I think the first place to begin with that is actually starting by listening to what it is you actually want. And for some people, that's actually going to be the hardest part of the work. And so in this moment, as you're listening, I want you to just take a breath for anyone who's listening and to just check in with how you are feeling. Maybe that's feeling in your body, but maybe that's feeling in your heart or in your emotions. What is something that would feel good to you right now? And all I want you to do whenever you figure it out is to say it out loud and say, I want it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Trouble With Sex team and our partners at Dame want you to know we've got your back. We're living in really stressful times and self-care has never been more important. Make sure you're carving out time to take care of you. This can mean self-pleasuring, masturbation. Those are great ways to decrease feelings of loneliness, anxiety, and it can even relieve depression. For more help exploring solo play, you can visit dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex. If, you, if you're going to answer this question, Shadeen, I want you to just take a minute to think about, for you, what your personal experience has been like as a millennial and as a woman of color. Do you think that you've had to fight harder uh, through the biases that we have in our society to talk about sex? Do you think that fighting for social justice has been more um, of a a journey for you because you're kind of a rebel and so it works for you? Like, tell us more about that. Yeah, I, oh, there's so many layers to that. Um, I think first I want to name for anyone listening because for whatever reason, our branding is way off. 
re-millennials. So I just want to name uh, for for any of you who are trying to, I also have a very young face, so no one's actually quite sure how old I am. That is true. You do look young. (laughs) Right. I get that all the time. Uh, The youngest millennials were born in 1996 and the oldest millennials were born in 1980. So in 2020, if you're 40, you're a millennial. And so I know that some of your listeners just like barfed. Um, but it's true. <laughs> it also blew people's mind. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> right. So 1980 to 1996, you are a millennial. Welcome. And so I, I think what's really um, hopeful and fun about uh, the time period in which we are in, especially for those of us who are millennials and Gen Zs, is that we've had this relationship to technology Mm. that I think gives us, yes, unique challenge, but new opportunity. If we were to imagine that technology is a way for us to overcome some of our sort of mortal limitations, then we could also imagine technology as a constant pursuit for pleasure. Everything that we create ideally could make our lives easier or better or more pleasurable in some way. And I think for many of us who grew up within that window, that is a kind of a natural part of our existence, sort of a natural uh, desire to create more opportunities for pleasure. I also think that it's true that for millennials, most of us were the first, were among the first cohort to be told that we were supposed to be happy. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Right. And so we were raised to believe that we are capable, special, and should be happy in this life, that we should do things that make us happy. Uh, and while that means that all of us are now cursed with just inevitable social comparison and anxiety, because we're all <laughs> like, am I doing a good job? I'm not happy all the time. I'm failing. Someone tell me I'm pretty. <laughs> but, just, but just acknowledging at the same time that we we no longer believe, at least as a generation, that we're supposed to just grin and bear it. And so we show in relationships slightly more unhappiness and wait a longer time to commit to partners and are more interested in casual dating, but also have less sex because we're really trying to be thoughtful about like what actually will make us happy. And so before people would, yeah, before people would divorce, you know, because they were unhappy, millennials divorce because they believe they could be happier. Mm, interesting. And, and I think that it speaks to our belief that we have more choices mm-hmm. overall. Well, you do have more choices. Right. And probably too many choices. Yeah, you sometimes. have access to a lot more choice. So many choices. It means we have so many more opportunities, but we haven't been given the tools for how to make quality choices because we don't necessarily center ourselves in those choices. We're thinking about, are you going to be proud of me? Are you going to be happy with me? How is this going to look when I post it on social media? Who has judgments about this? And not thinking about, is this an enthusiastic yes from my core? Yeah, so you're thinking more about the visuals and the repercussions. All of the externals and and consequences matter, but do we actually consider in the moment, like, how does this feel for me? Am I excited about this? And so to move this into conversations about race and identity, that there are all sorts of ways in which people are not permitted to make the same amounts of choices as others. When we think about racism, sexism, 
classism, heteronormativity, all of these systems, and that's just naming a few, all of these systems that really tell folks who are on the end of marginalization that you don't get to be happy in the ways that other people do, we're going to make it much more difficult for you to feel like you have freedom of choice, such that even if you are able to take the time to know what you want, it only matters insofar as we allow you the entry point to actually get it. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's more, it's not even the control of resources, it's the control of choice. Right, because and they, they use the resources to constrain your choices. Mm, interesting. So you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier on, right, that if I have a million things on my to-do list, if I'm busy, if I'm tired, what's my bandwidth to then slow down and center myself and think about what would make me happy in this moment? What would bring me peace or pleasure in this moment? Well, think about that at the level of race or gender. If I don't even have safety walking down the street because I am a black man, in a community that is taught to fear me, how am I supposed to move through the world and pursue like, oh, this is a thing that feels good, which is why if you, if you go on Twitter, hashtag black boy joy is an actual political movement. Interesting. Just the experience of people of color being happy mm. is a political statement. We have glass ceilings around race, around gender, around relationship orientation and style people who it's not safe for them to be out about loving more than one person or not loving the right gender of person or somehow not presenting their gender in a way that keeps them from encountering violence on the street not having the right to just be human we don't even have the right for many of us to accept the things we could not choose you did not choose your race I'm not a believer that people choose their gender, although they can choose their gender presentation. There are all of these identities that we just come into in the world and we don't even get the choice to say I'm, I'm good and I'm worthy and I'm safe and I'm lovable and I'm comfortable. That happens around class. Yeah. I love what you're saying about choice and pleasure being connected and that there's something about safety as well. And that when we talk about race and gender and orientation and being safe, that there is something about the capacity for joy and pleasure that is also related to the safety that we feel in our society. That, you know, the privilege of feeling safe on our own streets or in our homes has to do with race and has to do with gender and has to do with sexual orientation and has to do with, you know, that nuance of uh, the underlying fear of violence, whether it's sexual violence or violence in our society, and that there is a bias around that and that who deserves to have pleasure, who deserves to be safe, who deserves to have choice. And I, I love that you're talking about all of this. And I think it's so important when we're talking about the trouble with sex that, you know, there is a privilege around deserving uh, to make the choice about the kind of pleasure that you're going to have. You know, when we work with like open monogamy agreements and, you know, the choice that you have to have more 
flexible, fluid agreements around your monogamy, multiple partners, or like you were talking about before, different kinds of alternative sexual experiences. It becomes even more complicated with this intersectionality of race and background and orientation. And there is a a whole journey to freedom here that you are definitely talking about and being a pioneer in that discussion. I thank you. Thank you. If folks are needing some sort of visual around this, we could even imagine Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I don't think that pleasure is actually like at the peak. I think that we can experience pleasure at every single level Mm -hmm. with the base being our physiological needs. So water, air, food, sleep, shelter, our safety needs, love and belonging, right? moving higher and higher up to self-esteem or esteem overall. So if getting to some form of like nirvanic pleasure is feeling just way out of scope, start with the basics. Am I able to access these basics and enjoy them? And I narrate a lot around peace and pleasure Because peacefulness is really important. We live in a high-stress time, and feeling good is also about rest and about leisure, about the quiet, about the stillness, about the slowness. In the same way that pleasure, we might associate with words that are more active, that we we also need the the stillness to balance it out. So peace and pleasure Mm. as we move through these things. And if you're encountering barriers, I'm, I, I always talk about these contextual factors because it's we personalize them. I'm too stressed to be able to blah, blah, blah. And then you shame yourself for being stressed. Well, stress comes from the outside in. So what's happening outside? And can we hold those forces accountable for that even as you work to change the impact of stress on your life as you continue to pursue pleasure? Shadeen, I have a question from a listener. I'm Hispanic and my partner is African-American. She says, we come from a really traditional background and we have a monogamous relationship. I think we should be able to open our relationship. Can you please tell them it's okay? So I I could. I could. (laughs) I'm Uh, sure your permission will change everything in their lives. Yeah, I I would like to imagine I have that sort of power. Um, And so while I, I could tell him that it's okay, it doesn't sound like it is. It doesn't sound like it is for him. And I, I'm trying to follow pronouns here. It sounds like the question, who was asking the question? It sounds like she is asking you to tell him that it's okay. Got it. Thank you. Right. So while for you, you know, person who's writing this letter, you're ready to step outside of some of the confines of the traditional monogamy script that that might not feel confining for your partner. That might not feel confining for him. And if each of you were to authentically follow your pleasure and say that, oh, this is actually something that is good for me. This is something that I want. This is something that feels right for me, that the two of you actually have some other layers of negotiating to do here because you're pursuing things that actually feel different for each of you. And so, yeah, big picture, non-monogamy is okay. And also big picture, monogamy is okay. Both of these things are absolutely fine. But what each of you are trying to negotiate here is how do I create a relationship that allows me to feel the things that I want to feel? And so whatever is pulling you or drawing you or interesting you in non-monogamy, there are feelings attached to that. 
For some folks, it's around community. For some folks, it's around exploration or excitement or novelty. For some people, it's around mystery, around passion, around love or security. And any of those things can also be what your partner is wanting to feel, but from monogamy. The hope is that the two of you are able to even just have the question or have the conversation, rather, about what it is that you want without using the the labels of monogamy or non-monogamy, because those are just the frame. What is it that you want to feel in your relationship with each other and romantically big picture so that you can try and work towards the opportunities that allow you to have that? Yeah, I think that's a good answer. So to look at and talk about the vision of where you want to be, how you want to feel, and regardless of what your monogamy agreement is, to be able to really talk about the feelings behind what you want so that you can empathize with each other. You may not agree, but you may, might be able to come to a place where you can validate each other's feelings. Yeah, and if we start with the feelings, we can work towards the how we go about getting those feelings or needs met. Because we get really caught up in the labels or the package and forget what the gift is. The gift is always the feeling. Sex is cool and, you know, we want, you know, orgasms and whatever. We want our relationships to look and sound a certain way. But if, if they don't feel good, none of that other stuff matters. Everything boils down to how it makes you feel. I really like that. Can you leave us with a listener tip or something that the listeners now can do that might make a difference in their relationships? Yeah. I want to maybe leave folks with a challenge. So the most vulnerable thing that you can feel is joy. The reason why is because when we feel joy, you have a lot to lose. Right? When we feel good, we the stakes are pretty high. Mm-hmm. And we don't often allow ourselves to just participate in joy because it's risky. I want for listeners to think about the last time they felt joyful. And I want them to tell their partner or their friend, some person who feels significant to you. I just want you to share that story of a time that you can remember feeling joy. And there doesn't have to be big or deep context around it. Just like, hey, like I remember this thing and I want to, can I share it with you? I love that. And to just see what that feels like, to see what that feels like to be vulnerable, even in the retelling. Because the more you're able to be in joy, the more you're able to enjoy the rest of your life. Yeah. So the more you're able to be in joy, the more you're able to enjoy the rest of your life. That's lovely. And so I'd love for my listeners to go to thetroublewithsex.com and leave us your story about the last time you felt joy and what that was like for you. And Shadeen, I just want to thank you so much for being with us. And can you tell people how they can find you? My website is my name, shadeenfrancis.com. Reach out to me um, on my website, Or you can DM me on Instagram if that's a place where you are. And let me know what you want to know so that I can make sure that I offer that material for you. Shadeen, we love you. And as usual, you are fighting the good fight. And you are all about pleasure. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Tammy. Until next time. This episode was brought to you by Dame Products. 
find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab, New York City. This episode was recorded on location by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Oh, 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 oh,